And now, more Educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our ongoing discussion of the corporate world's impact on public education. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. My next guest, John Kuhn, is the superintendent of the Perrinwood Consolidated Independent School District in Texas, and he is author of Fear and Learning in America and Test and Punishment. Mr. Kuhn is a staunch public school advocate. Videos of his speeches have gone viral, and so has an open letter he wrote to Texas state legislators on behalf of public schools. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. I greatly appreciate it. Um, John, you feel that using standardized test scores to rate schools and teachers is misleading. Why is that? Well, I think, first of all, standardized tests are very limited in what they reveal about a student and learning and even more limited in what they reveal about teaching. Uh, so we are definitely misusing the tests, and that's not just me from the public school side saying that. Even if you talk to the test makers, uh, they will tell you that their tests are not meant to do what our politicians are trying to force them to do. Now, are they doing the same in Texas as here in New York where they're tying or trying to tie the test results to teacher and principal evaluations? Uh, yeah, they are, and that's actually being driven by the federal government. Uh, there's a, there, there's a, a requirement uh, for you to receive a waiver from No Child Left Behind. You have to agree to implement teacher evaluation systems that tie teacher uh, quality or the, or the idea of teacher quality, teacher evaluations, to test scores. Uh, this idea, this, this use of tests has been uh, thoroughly uh, criticized by groups including the American Statistical Association, all sorts of representatives from higher education, um, and Texas resisted for a while, and we were under No Child Left Behind, you know, after a lot of states had received their waivers. Uh, but we finally, on the cusp of 2014, when 100% of our students had to pass their standardized tests or else their schools would be labeled failures, uh, our state officials did apply for a waiver. And in the negotiations with Washington, D.C., they uh, agreed to uh, implement uh, a teacher evaluation system that tied teacher evaluations to test scores. Um, I think this is still in development. There are 70 school districts next year piloting this new teacher evaluation system, and it's my assumption and belief that uh, this will turn into a, a pretty ugly fight in Texas. We just actually had a, a kind of a, a revolution in Texas led by a group of moms against the overemphasis on standardized testing. And now, uh, after some victories and some rollbacks in the number of tests, here we go again at the state level, uh, overemphasizing standardized tests above every other, you know, uh, measure of quality that exists for, for schooling. And what do you believe is the motivation behind the politicians and being so um, forceful at, at passing these, this legislation and, and accepting these policies? What do, you, what do you feel is behind that? Well, I think there's a number of factors. I think uh, on the one hand, you have some true believers who want the data to do more than it really can do. These are kind of the modern-day Taylorists. 
who believe that uh, there is a, a a mechanism, a statistical uh, tool that can be developed to, to do just about everything. And so they're willing to overlook the flaws and the limitations of using numbers in the way they're wanting to use them. So you have those people pushing these these ideas. And then you also have people that I consider to be vandals who really just want to undermine and, and upend public education in the United States. These are people who for a long time have preferred other ways of providing educational services to kids. Uh, and I'm talking mainly about vouchers and school choice. I think a lot of those people uh, believe that this would reduce taxation, and so that's why they're in favor of it. Other, other people are just kind of true believers and, and ideologues. Uh, who who feel that uh, you know a free market system is uh, would would generate you know uh, quantum improvements in quality, um, and then I think there are also people who are motivated by the opportunity to uh, uh, you know get in on the ground floor of of running for profit chains of schools or uh, the the testing corporations that are making lots and lots of money from the tests. Uh, I'll tell you this. Some very big name people, including uh, Bill Gates and uh, our Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, they have expressed a belief that um, if we enact these types of policies and processes, that we will unleash the the create the creative potential of the private sector and technology businesses and test makers, and that when we do that, uh, they will come up with these great new technologies and great new techniques that will improve education for the children of America. And I, I don't doubt that that's their, their fervent belief, but it's, not, it's, it's based in uh, kind of wishful thinking rather than any kind of uh, research or any kind of demonstrated reality. So we're, we're taking a lot of big gambles uh, and using our kids as guinea pigs to see if certain things work that have, have never worked in any country in the world. Hmm. Now, getting back to the testing, I heard you speak last Sunday on, on an, uh, another talk show in the New York area, and you mentioned the dollar signs behind the money that goes to Pearson because of the testing in Texas alone. Can yeah. you share some of that with us? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that really the reason I began to speak out, because it's not in my best interest to be very vocal. You know, as a school superintendent, you kind of want to keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, and keep your job, you know. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you a quick story. We uh, there was there was a uh, a time in 2010. It was right after kind of the Tea Party uh, kind of took over here in Texas, and uh, th- there was a recession, and so there were these major budget cuts in Texas that hit education particularly hard. It was 5.4 billion dollars in cuts to education. For me personally, as a school superintendent, that meant job cuts. A significant percentage of my staff uh, was let go, and and we wow. kind of reeled from that. So in the midst of this very stressful, trying time. I went to a I went to a meeting of administrators where a member of our Senate or State Senate Ed Committee was speaking, and this particular senator had been instrumental in the development of our funding system, which was very inequitable and very inadequate. But she had also been instrumental in the development of a testing program that had just grown and grown and grown. And so, starting in the 80s and 90s, we had a corporation that was called NCS. It was later bought out by Pearson, which is the biggest test maker in the United States, and there were several generations of tests that Texas used, standardized tests that were given to all students across the state. And the cost of this program, as it changed and evolved, it grew and it grew. Not only did the cost grow, but the number of days of testing that, that interfered with, you know, education, which is what we're really about, that grew, um, and, and the stakes tied to the test grew. Um, during this time also, 
unbeknownst to most regular citizens of Texas, lobbyists representing the testing corporation made their way onto the state-level committees that designed our accountability program. And so as these accountability committees recommended more testing and different testing and new testing, should have come as no surprise because they were kind of being led by the nose by uh, representatives of the actual industry, you know, the testing industry. So to get to the actual numbers, when I sat in the audience listening to this senator speak, she said, we're having really hard financial times in Texas right now. We're going to have to make some severe cuts. We're all just going to have to share the pain, and it's, you know, it's really too bad, but it just has to be. And then she said, but, you know, we have this new testing system coming out. It's called the STAR test, and accountability is so important that the contract for this test is non-negotiable. Hmm. That, that one word, non-negotiable, I was, I was just I was so upset, so angry. Uh, that I that I, I spoke up and I told her I said you're saving the test but not the teachers and that's what prompted me to write the open letter that kind of started my advocacy for public schools but the number to get to your original question finally um, the the contract that she was defending was 468 million dollars for five years worth of tests mm. now that is a big big business and it has gotten so big that our former education commissioner, right before he left office, he said it's the military-industrial complex. He said it's the heart of the vampire, talking about testing. He said it's a perversion of the original intent. And then later at a Save Texas Schools rally, he came and spoke, and he said, you've heard of the tail wagging the dog. Standardized testing is the flea on the end of the tail wagging the dog. Mm. So, so he's a, it, it sounds as if, you know, everyone needs to keep their kids home from the chest in order for them to get the message that this is not the direction a lot of people want our country going. You know, there, know. there are a lot of parents who are doing that now and, and for good reason. Yeah, I know we had a large number here on Long Island where I live. Um, I don't know what the results were in Texas, but, um, I, I believe that's growing and will continue to grow. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We're seeing it uh, beginning in Texas. And, you know, as a school superintendent, it, it puts me in a difficult spot because when a parent does not take the test, there are consequences for the school. And so I'm torn because I'm, I'm a representative of the school, and, I, you know, I don't like the way that the state and the federal government rank and rate and shame schools based on student test scores because I believe there's a lot more to learning than what's reflected on the test. At the same time, I want my school to be rated and ranked as high as possible so that, you know, we're not closed down and we don't have to have this scarlet letter of our own failure on us. At the same time, however, I'm a dad. I've got three children that go to public schools, and what I want for them is diametrically opposed to what this test and punish system that the government has put in place uh, causes and creates for my kids. So I am empathetic with parents who choose to opt out, I understand why they do it. I understand where they're coming from. And then as testing season rolls around, I hope and pray that nobody opts out in my school because <laughs> it will hurt my school. It's really, it's a real dilemma for a school superintendent who is thoughtful about these things. Absolutely. You're in a catch-22 situation. Um, in fact, we f I found it interesting in my own observation here that the lower performing schools, which more often are the lower socioeconomic uh, environments, 
um, those kids can't opt out because their parents have to go to work. They don't have a place to put their kids during the day. So what we're finding is that there's a higher percentage of kids opting out or parents opting their kids out of the higher performing, wealthier school districts. And I, I think the state will be hard pressed to follow up on their threat of uh, consequences when the school itself is a high performing, wealthy school district. Um, I don't know what your opinion would be on that that scenario. Yeah, um, I, I think you're exactly right, and I, I and I think that's one of the the things that really scares a lot of the people pushing this testing environment onto our schools. I think it scares them very badly because they know really if the if the parents choose not to uh, cooperate, choose not to be a part of that. They can't really do anything about it. Um, you know, uh, I know in Texas there are certain grade levels, fifth grade and eighth grade, where if you if you don't pass the test, you are not supposed to advance. But then there's there's kind of an escape clause where uh, uh, the the school district can have a committee meet and they can say, well, we're going to go ahead and advance this child based on other factors besides the test. And what we've seen here is that. Uh, parents have opted out with kids in those grades and the committees have advanced them anyway because the kids were making all A's and, you know, their teacher said, yeah, this kid, you know, he knows what he's supposed to know. Um, now, what what is a what is in Texas uh, kind of unavoidable is at the high school level, the students have to pass the standardized tests in order to graduate. And so at the high school level in Texas, there's really no opting out because you can't earn a diploma without passing five standardized tests. Yeah, similar here. Uh, we have regents exams. Kids have to pass a certain number of regents exams to go through. And that's been the case even before testing has become such a an ogre. Um, but at this time, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with more in just a few. listening to educate on talkzone.com back to jonathan jefferson welcome back welcome back welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest john kuhn uh john back in 1983 i believe it was the reagan commission uh, or the reagan administration commissioned a report called the nation at risk um if we go back that far do you believe a nation at risk improved american schools Oh, no, not at all. Uh, in fact, I think it uh, set us on a course uh, toward the current uh, scenario. And, uh, it, you know, it kind of goes back to something you said just a minute ago. Uh, you, you mentioned how uh, low-income schools are kind of disproportionately impacted by the standardized tests because their parents, a lot of times parents in those schools, don't have the uh, the luxury of pulling their kids out of tests because the, the parents go to work. And I think the the way that the uh, a nation at risk report uh, set up the the playing card table you know the way it set up the the, the game board uh it it set up a scenario where rhetoric was elevated to say we are enacting these policies to help lower income students uh, attain the same quality of education that higher income students do and the the thing about it is nobody opposes that nobody's going to say oh that's a bad idea everybody wants our low-income American students to have the same quality education, the same quality teachers, the same quality curriculum as what you would find in, in wealthy suburbs. But what really happened was when the conversation got totally focused on what the teachers do and totally focused on what the test scores look like, and we stopped talking about other factors that impact education, 
we muted any other conversation about, uh, for example, equitable school funding. You almost never hear, you, you, never, you never see it in a nation at risk. You never hear it from today's education reform think tanks and, and foundations, most of which are, are funded by, you know, billionaires, some of the richest people in America. You never hear them say, you know, one of the key problems in education today is that we fund schools based on property taxes, and that means that uh, schools located in areas with higher property values they get more money to operate on. So what we have established is a system where I'm going to give uh, this group of kids right here lower-paid teachers, buildings that may be falling apart, fewer books, older computers, and then I'm going to say, y'all need to get the same results as those kids over there with higher-paid teachers and better computers. And so we're not taking care of the root of the problem. We're trying to jump right to what we see, which is the test scores, instead of really solving what's what's causing the problem. Mm. So, and I agree with you, there's, if, if you read Elements of a Nation at Risk, you see where we were headed. <laughs> you know, we, we looking back, it's clear where we were headed because it did uh, advocate more testing. Well, and I, and I think one of the things that we do now in education, and, and as we talk about education, is we are so eager to place blame on that classroom teacher that we don't place blame on ourselves for the politics that we have allowed to unfold. We d- we don't, as citizens, you know, as voters, take responsibility for the public policies that that could alleviate some of the poverty, that could insist on equitable funding. You know, uh, as an educator, one of the things I studied going to school was uh, Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. And in that hierarchy of needs, what what Abraham Maslow says is he says, you know. The, the highest need, the highest need of a person is self-actualization, and that's where they, they reach for their dreams, and, and learning kind of lives up there in the top of, of this hierarchy of needs. But down at the bottom, before you can even worry about learning and, and making the most of yourself and developing yourself, your needs like uh, food and shelter and a feeling of security and a feeling of being loved, those needs have to be met before you can attain to those higher needs. What the school reform movement has said is, let's not worry about those those needs down there. Let's let's don't even talk about that. In fact, if teachers bring up, you know, that that some of their kids are lacking basic, you know, things that that we take for granted a lot of times when we come from a middle class or upper class background, those teachers are told, well, hey, don't make excuses. Worry about the learning. Worry about the instruction. But the fact is, when we have such an inequitable society that we live in, learning doesn't just happen. Hey, I agree. And in fact, what they're doing in New York City schools in some areas is the um, schools where no one wants to teach are actually offering teachers more money if they stay for two years or whatever the case might be. Um, that is almost tantamount to uh, merit pay. How do you feel about merit pay? I, I am not a supporter of merit pay, and I've, I've got my reasons. Um, the key reason is when people talk about merit pay, what they really mean is standardized test score pay because they don't have any other way of measuring merit. They don't offer any other way of measuring meritorious teachers than just looking at test scores. And test scores are very limited. Um, they, they measure – we're almost exclusively talking across the nation about math and English language arts. Those are the tests that the No Child Left Behind Act required. They're the tests that Race to the Top looks at and – 
first of all, 70% of our teachers don't teach math or English language arts. They teach other subjects. So when we say merit pay, and we're looking at these test scores and saying, well, did, did your kids do as well on the test scores as they should have when they were in your care? We're leaving out a whole big chunk of teachers. But then the other thing is, too, even within that classroom, those teachers do a lot more than just teach those discrete facts that happen to show up on the test. Uh, first of all, they, they teach information that doesn't end up on the test, which there's no way of measuring how well they did on that. But they also teach kind of non-cognitive skills. You know, teachers, they inspire, they motivate, they encourage. Teachers uh, go out and, you know, they volunteer in the community. Teachers are often sponsors of classes and clubs. You know, teachers start clubs. There's teachers all over the nation that have said, you know what, I like robotics, and our, our school doesn't have a robotics club. Let me get in there and start that. And so when you really talk about merit, you know, there, there may be a way of measuring merit, like, for example, a, a school administrator or a team of teachers saying, that teacher right there is the best one we've got. You know, that, that teacher right there is a team player. She, she shares resources. She's willing to step in and watch my class if I have an emergency and leave. All of those things that are real quality uh, things that improve a school, there's no measure for that in these so-called merit pay schemes. And so I think they're, you know, I kind of think they're kind of like junk science, and, and we, we shouldn't elevate those, you know. Now, now when I'm th- when you, the way you just describe your position on, uh, you know, using tests to, you know, warrant merit pay, um, it, it got me thinking about your first book. Uh, I don't know if it's your first book, but <laughs> your 2013 book, Test and Punishment. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah, so so test and punish is. Uh, I really enjoyed writing that book. It is it is a. It's not like fear and learning. Fear and learning is is a memoir. It's my personal story. It talks. It's got examples of things I've gone through in the classroom and and a lot of you know my opinions and reactions to things. But test and punish is a history of how we got to where we are today. It talks about the different players um, who in the George W. Bush administration brought No Child Left Behind from Texas, which is where I'm at, to the national stage. It talks about how the No Child Left Behind Act, which is, you know, kind of the the core of it, is we're going to give kids a test, we're going to take that data, we're going to disaggregate it by ethnicity, we're going to disaggregate it by socioeconomic status, and then we're going to punish schools if, if we don't see improvement. That kernel, that idea, was actually started in the Dallas Independent School District way back in the 80s. Um, and so this goes all the way back to then. It actually goes back before then to some of the uh, court cases in Texas that were about inequitable school funding. And the point I make in Test and Punish, you know, first of all, I make the point that we're in a bad place in education policy. And, and it's bipartisan. The Republicans and Democrats both support what we're doing and where we're going, for the most part. I think now we're mm-hmm. starting to hear some voices that are, that are you know, being a little more critical of what we're doing. But it all started as a basically a bait and switch to change the conversation away from equity. See, in Texas, when this all came about, we were in the midst of court battle over the fact that certain school districts were funded at a higher, you know, per-pupil dollar amount than other school districts. The school districts that were getting shortchanged were largely minority, um, and they were located in inner cities, they were located along the border, and they were located in kind of fading farm towns out in rural areas. Meanwhile, in, in wealthier suburbs, those schools were getting more money. 
So we had these court fights. Uh, one of them went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, basically saying, this is not fair. You know, the state constitution guarantees an adequate education for every child in the state, and you're shortchanging us. And so as that played out in the courts, uh, this, this genius idea was brought up to say, you know what? It's not important what we put into schools. It's not important how much we spend. What's important is how well those schools do with what we give them. So the conversation got shifted from the, the inputs, the funding, the supports, to the outputs. And, and it, that shift has, has made a huge negative impact on, on how we do schools. Wow. Well, well said. Uh, what kind of reforms do you support? Well, you know, in, in the back of the last chapter of Fear and Learning in America, I've got six, uh, six prescriptions that I think would do much better than, than these faulty prescriptions that have been pushed, the test and punish prescriptions. The first one that I offer is uh, something you've probably heard quite a bit from a number of different people, and that is universal pre-kindergarten for low-income children. I think it's important to get those kids uh, the basics of numeracy and literacy um, as early as we can, uh, because a, a lot of times those kids are coming into school, you know, way behind. And I think if, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. We have money in this nation. We're a, we're a very wealthy nation. We choose to spend it in a variety of ways. But if we wanted to choose to spend it on young children who come from low-income backgrounds, who whose parents may not have the opportunity to work with them because they work evenings, they work multiple jobs, uh, young children who maybe are highly mobile and they move around a lot, if we could get them the, the the stability of a learning environment where they're learning literacy and numeracy every day, I think that's a positive thing. Right. The second we thing only, is, yeah, we only have a couple of minutes left, so if you can just list the others, I'd appreciate that. Okay. We need to remove property worth as a factor in school funding. We need to enlist better gatekeepers in our education, educator preparation programs. We need to use testing for diagnostic purposes, not punitive purposes. We need to reject any accountability that doesn't factor in the context the school is in, and we need to amplify teacher and student voice when we make policy. Excellent. We have been speaking with John Kuhn, superintendent of the Perrinwood Consolidated Independent School District in Texas and author of Fear and Learning in America and Test and Punishment. John, if listeners are interested in purchasing your books, where should they go? They're both available on Amazon.com. And uh, uh, one of them is available at ed311.com. Great. John, thanks so much for joining us. Jonathan, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. Tune in next week as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors. <laughs>